Girl Tries Life podcast, where we show you that women are capable of absolutely incredible things with the right tools, strategies, and mindset in place. Now, today on the podcast, I am over the moon. It is safe to say, as someone who is constantly interviewing badass women, that I have a dream list of interviewees. Whoopi Goldberg's definitely up there. I'm a big fan of The View. Catherine Reitman, because I am just obsessed with working moms. And Komal Minhas. So if you haven't heard of Komal, you're in for a treat because she is one of the smartest, most courageous women that I know. She's an Alberta girl, and Komal is the producer of the documentary Dream Girl, which is about female entrepreneurship. So for my fellow entrepreneurs out there, you should check out this documentary if you haven't seen it. The entire thing is on YouTube. Uh, It's really going to inspire you and light a fire under your butt, I promise. She's also the founder of Comedia, and she recently launched CoreSpace, which is media for women that focuses on work, wellness, and impact. And uh, as if any of those are not a big enough deal, she was also listed as one of Oprah's Super Soul 100. She is, Okomal's incredible. So in this interview, we talk about why the year Dream Girl came out was one of the best and worst of her life, and how she now prioritizes her health above all else. Uh, Komal also shares her top advice for women in their careers and businesses so that you can maintain your vibrancy and avoid burnout. Now, the Girl Tries Life podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which is powered by ATB. Now, given that we're talking about entrepreneurship, you know I'm going to talk about ATBX. Uh, ATBX is a small business accelerator program. So if you're in sort of the early stages of your business, if you live in Calgary or now Edmonton, since they've expanded up there, I highly recommend that you apply for this accelerator. Their next cohort is starting in September. I went through it myself, and I can say that in the space of 10 short weeks, I learned so much and not just you know, the learnings and the coaching that I got, but I was, I'm now open to this community that I was never exposed to before. And I just, I can't say how much benefit I got from this program. So I highly recommend you check it out out, and you can go to atb.com forward slash atbx. Now, another fellow member of the Alberta Podcast Network, given that we are talking about wellness, I did want to tell you a little bit about healthy lifestyle design. So this is the podcast that is all about how it just takes a small single step to make a positive change. So you can join Pamela and her mom, Janet, as they talk about all the ways in which they've tried to design a healthy lifestyle. So you can find that in today's show notes, which is at girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast dash 117. Okay, so without further ado, let's head into the interview with Komal. Well, thank you so much, Komal, for joining us on the podcast. I'm like such a fangirl right now. I'm so happy to be here, and I so appreciate you and your enthusiasm and for reaching out to have me here. Well, I, for a lot of our listeners, they may or may not have seen Dream Girl. They may or may not have been uh, sort of exposed to the work that you do. So I kind of want to start with 2016, (laughs) which was both sort of the best and the worst year of your life. So I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about why those two things coincided. Absolutely. So Dream Girl is a documentary film about uh, ambitious and inspiring female entrepreneurs that I produced and created with my co-founder, Erin Bagwell, in New York. And it started as a small seed of a dream. Erin had created a Kickstarter campaign to create this film. She the, the call to action was, you know, we see the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs, but who are the female founders? Like, what do their lives look like? 
And the Kickstarter campaign went viral courtesy of Marie Forleo. And she sent it to all of her newsletter uh, readers uh, with this call to action to help fund the campaign. And almost overnight, it went from 30,000 to or 37,000 to like 50,000. And then a couple days later, broke $100,000 on Kickstarter. And that is how the film came onto my radar. And after I saw the Kickstarter campaign and the, the short video that Aaron had made to promote the Kickstarter campaign, I was hooked. I knew I had to be a part of the production, the film, everything that was to come. I just saw so much of myself in the women on screen and in Aaron's mission. So fast forward, uh, I, I pitched her to join. I invested in the film. I brought camera equipment up to New York when we were filming, helped bring on Suzanne West, who is one of the characters that you meet in the film, who is this incredibly prolific Canadian entrepreneur who unfortunately did pass away last year, but we get to honor her through the film. And fast forward a few years to 2016, and we were getting ready to launch. It was two years later, we had filmed, produced, edited, Aaron directed, created this incredible film, and the momentum that was behind us was huge. And it was March 2016, and a week earlier, or sorry, um, I had been diagnosed with a very rare form of skin cancer. So I had come back home to Canada. At this point, I was living in New York and came back for some routine blood work and walked out with a cancer diagnosis. And it was a really intense time for us because we were launching a movement. We were creating something so big and important. And it was pre-2016 election. The, the energy was palpable around the future of women and our future in multiple industry, politics, business, all of this. And we just felt so committed to bringing our story to the world and supporting the thousands of women who were behind our Kickstarter campaign, men and women. So a week after I was diagnosed, we were actually named to Oprah's Super Soul 100, which is a list of 100 global change makers who are making lasting impact on the world. And as you can imagine, that's where that cadence of best and worst year of my life come into play. We ended up premiering the film at the Obama White House, and a month prior, I had had my first surgery to remove the cancer in May. And my our, our premiere at the White House was my first pain-free day. And fast forward a few months later, and um, the same week that I was on my first magazine cover, I was also heading in for my second surgery. So it was a lot of highs and a lot of lows. And it was a year that really took a lot out of me and made me realize that it wasn't enough for me to change my external world and change the world around me and be this massive change maker in the world. I had to change my own life. And that's what led into 2017, which was me taking time off and being forced to take time off because I had gotten sick again with a neurological illness. So that that led into 2017. But I know you wanted to start with 2016. So (laughs) I'm curious, I know you've I've heard in interviews, you've talked about the neurological um, illness. Can I ask what it what it was? Absolutely. It was something called optic neuritis. So uh, it is it's it's an anomaly in 40 percent of cases and 60 percent of cases. It's related to multiple sclerosis. And I um, I had had a pretty passion in December of 2016. And about a month later, lost vision in my left eye. Just woke up one day in January and I couldn't see out of my left eye. And it took about a week and a half um, for the proper tests to be done for them to realize I had what's called optic neuritis. It's essentially where your optic nerve becomes inflamed. 
And um, I was in the neuro-optometrist's office in Park Slope, Brooklyn, because I didn't have health insurance. And I just, it was like the lowest cost entry point to the type of care that I required. And she just asked me point blank, like, is there a history of MS in your family? And I was like, no. And she was like, well, this could very well be linked to multiple sclerosis. And I just remember, and I've never shared this, but walking out of the optometrist's office and my husband, my fiance at the time, husband now was with me. And I just, I've never broken down and I've never cried the way that I cried on that street in Brooklyn. And it was very, very, very intense. And it was my wake up call because apparently cancer wasn't enough of one to (laughs) learn that again, it it wasn't enough to want to change the external world. I had a lot of work to do to change my world. And so a week later we moved back to Canada because I needed some acute care and it took about seven or eight months for my, most of my vision to return. I still have about, I still am missing about 10% of my vision in my left eye, but, and that's permanently damaged. Um, but I knew with any neurological illness that stress was one of the biggest aggravators and um, accelerators. So now I live in the country. <laughs> I've moved from the, the streets of New York to rural Ontario in Canada. And I, I couldn't be happier or healthier now, almost two years later. And when you say you live in the country, like your husband is saving frogs from the pool. <laughs> he is. Yes, you, you are. Very, you are correct. We he put this thing in the pool, four of them. They're called frog logs because he would be <laughs> catching frogs from the pool filter. So yeah. My, yeah, exactly. And we're looking at deer. Like I think the turkeys are out right now. We're we're in the middle of 40 acres um, here just outside of Ottawa. And it's our little sanctuary. And it's a place actually where a lot of our friends now come for, for, for respite. We call it the retreat. Well, whenever friends come over, it's retreat weekend. They get to unplug chill out, reflect, and just kind of fill their cups back up. And that's sort of my ethos now with everything I create. And isn't it crazy that like back in maybe our parents' day or our grandparents' day, like a vacation or an exciting thing was to go to a city and now we all are overstimulated and need these respites and these breaks and these retreats when like we would never would have before. Absolutely. And I think it's it's really is the hyperconnectivity and the ability for us to not turn off that really can take us over the edge and we don't even realize it because it's been become so normalized societally yeah that we're connected to technology that that go 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 is the norm and that, that we're starting to treat our bodies as though we are machines when we're in fact human beings yeah. <laughs> so when you're diagnosed with this neurological illness You were 26, 27? I had just turned, this is a great question, I had just turned 27. Yeah. And that's nuts because you don't expect these things. Ideally, none of us ever want any of these things to happen to us. But we all seem to think we we have all this time and that if anything's going to happen, it's not going to be till our 40s or anything like that. So you've had this wake-up call at such a young age, which is so rare. Absolutely. And it's really funny, too, because it was obviously it was a shock to me as the person going through it. But even like the people in my family, my parents, cousins, siblings, like they still don't know how to talk about it. Like when we talk about that period of my life, I just say when I was sick. Because I think it's you kind of have to dissociate as an individual who loves someone who's going through so much or as an individual who's going through 
such intense things because it is unbelievable. And to land in the reality when it's when it's such an intense reality can be a really hard thing for a lot of people. Yeah. We're going to come back to wellness in a second. I want to rewind quickly to Dream Girl for a second. For sure. This was like no small task. Like you and Aaron did some incredibly gutsy things. And you uh, talk in an interview about having like pitched Mindy Kaling at Cannes and or, or at Sundance and but got yourself on a panel at Cannes and all of those kinds of things. What like did any of those things scare you in the moment? Oh my God, I, as soon as you said the Mindy thing, I was right back in Park City, Utah, in that theater. It was the last question. I put my hand up. I knew I was going to be, quote unquote, that person in the audience who's pitching their whatever to the, whatever celeb is on stage. But I just had to go for it. And people came up to me after and, and I shared a little bit about Dream Girl. And I said to Mindy, we would love for you to be the narrator. And it's just one of those things where it's like reflecting back. Those moments are often more for the individual than they are for the outcome. It's more like, what is my, like, what's my level of audacity in this situation? What's my level of commitment to the task at hand or to the dream at hand? And at that time it was like, we're going all in, like, what, where do I need to be? What do I need to do? And when you have that like boundless commitment, energy, enthusiasm that I think comes like with being in your early to mid 20s also, you just roll with it like you're, you go all out. And those were definitely moments where it was like, we're going big, like this is a once in a lifetime moment for us to create something of value, of substance, of impact. And we're not leaving anything behind in this situation. Yeah. So between then and now, what are the, like the elements of entrepreneurship that, that do scare you and how do you navigate those? It's funny because I feel like we created Dream Girl at a time where female networking groups and conversations about women in business and entrepreneurialism were quite limited. Um, it was early, it was mid 2014, the, the landscape for women in business and especially online business and online marketing, et cetera was really a lot more narrow. You had your Marie, you had Marie Forleo, you had like the Gabby Bernstein's, Danielle Laporte's who are obviously more in the spiritual entrepreneurship space, but it was less about the, the nuts and bolts of business. And so when we were building Dream Girl, we didn't necessarily have frameworks or understanding of what's needed in a sales capacity, product capacity, data capacity to build a company for the long term. And it was also around the time that you saw like the rise of the BuzzFeeds and there's a lot of content platforms that are now starting to scale down or pull back because of the shifts in advertising models. So when I look at like the nuts and bolts of how we built our distribution plan around Dream Girl, I carried some of those beliefs and limiting beliefs into building my new company Core Space. So what I've had to unlearn or face my fear around, and also when it comes to fear, something I've realized very recently is that fear for me is really just a knowledge gap. When I get afraid of something, it's we often go to the narratives of I'm not good enough to do X thing, or this scares me because I'm unfamiliar or whatever it is. And it always just comes back to a lack of education or a lack of knowledge. So when I look at fear points when it comes to my business, that would be understanding the data and analytics and building a sales infrastructure that's evergreen foundational that can really propel my business forward. And so when I see that fear and, and I'm really in a season of dis 
dispelling that fear, it was to hire accordingly and hire for those gaps that I have within my own knowledge base. And for some people, it means learning up on those skills. But fortunately, I'm surrounded by folks and, and had a content marketer come my way and data analyst who really are supporting me in in dispelling this fear of like, can I create a business that is uh, a long-term legacy kind of business that's going to create significant and consistent returns for me and my employees and leave a, a, a massive impact in the world? Those are a lot of big things, but the core of any business is the sales infrastructure, the the monetary piece of it. And I think with the glamorization of entrepreneurialism, we sometimes forget that like that is the core of business, the transaction, the customer, um, the product, and really diving into that. So that would be a fear that I'm in the process of working through and working through it through leveling up in my knowledge and hiring to support so that fear can just, we can shine a light on it. Yeah, I think you're so right. There, it's a knowledge gap or sort of fear of the unknown and not having tried something before. And when you try it, you kind of often find it's less scary than you think it was as long totally. as you give it a go. <laughs> yeah. And you have to like talk yourself up to get there. Um, and that takes a lot of like, you have to be very courageous to get to that point of action in the face of something that is the unknown. Yeah. I want to ask you about, so between yourself, myself, all the, like all these incredible women who I know that are running businesses with impact, so many of them have burnt out. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I remember I was asking a fellow entrepreneur recently on the podcast, and I was saying like, do you have examples of women who have sort of reached the heights that, that many of us want to with our businesses who haven't burned out, who have done it sustainably? I mean, it's so hard to say because we don't have, we don't get to see the innermost thoughts of most of the people that we look up to. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the women who I could name or people who I could name could very well not have publicly shared about their lowest moments. So I think it's like, we can't project an expectation that burnout can be necessarily avoided. And that's hard for me to say because it is a big mission of mine to help as many people as possible avoid burnout because I know firsthand what that can be like. But at the same time, like each person has to walk their own path to like their what they're here to learn, what we're here on this earth to learn. And so when I look at folks like I can't assume that they've been burnt out or not, or people who are evangelizing that I've never been burnt out. And therefore, like, for whatever reason, that would put them on a pedestal. So no, I can't think of someone, a female in particular, who publicly has has not burned out. But I also don't want to say that in a way where it's like statistically an anomaly, because mm -hmm. I just feel like we don't know enough about people to know what we don't know. Yeah. So when I think, because I often wonder sort of what I would say to other, to younger women who are sort of fresh out of school or whatever, and they're starting their businesses and they, and they have that, like you're saying, you're, you're in your twenties, you have that go, 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 put it all on the table kind of mentality. I often think of like, how do you sort of share that message with ambitious women about how to grow their business sustainably keeping their wellness top of mind while not feeling behind their peers if they're not hustling to the same degree. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And I would say like the core to this is therapy or coaching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of those things, like when we're saying like, 
playing the comparison game, well, that comes to inner work. That comes to, are you dealing with your own demons? Like, where do your expectations of yourself actually come from? Like, what, why are you so addicted to specific outcomes, work styles, habits, behaviors? What's really making you tick? And so for me, when I talk to young people, a lot of people don't realize that they have counseling services available on campus and that this is something that they can kind of start resourcing when they are in college, university. And then when you're fresh in the job market, it's the first thing you let go of is like a lot of young people aren't encouraged to have people to talk through things with. So when I do share with young women about like, what do I think is the most important thing for them to stay sane and for this long-term sustainability and it is community because if therapy or traditional coaching is not an avenue that is affordable or available then the next best thing is who's around you like who's your safety net who are the people you can lean on are you emoting are you like being candid about how hard this struggle is because I know that in lieu of a coaching session or a therapy session I have a core group of people in my life that I can reach out to when I am struggling and when I need just to let it out. And so I would say like that is the most important thing as a human being, because I think this goes beyond entrepreneurship where we see people in conventional workplaces who are under these like wild expectations about how to live and how to work. And they just don't know how to stop or how to like process. And the best way to process is through communication, through story and through community. And I think uh, like being able to being willing to be vulnerable and be open when other people maybe necessarily aren't like not like I know Brene Brown talks about like the vulnerability hangover. But like I know for myself when I went through postpartum depression, like that sucked. But being able to sort of share that I was feeling the challenges all of a sudden this community opened up to me that I didn't realize was there. But I had to sort of be brave and vocal first. In order to find absolutely them. and we often think we're alone in our suffering but we can be pleasantly surprised when we realize that this is experience that is shared and that can be that you can feel comfort around like there's nothing so terrible uh, isolating fear-filled that there isn't another person in the world who has felt or could help you cope through that thing. So I think just reminding ourselves that you're exactly right, like to have the courage to be vulnerable about our truths. And so part of that, I think, is we had a we talked just about BuzzFeed and all the all the media that we're surrounded by and that comparison game and everything. You're trying to do something completely different in media. So can you tell us a little bit about Core Space? Absolutely. So when I was in my recovery in 2017, as experiencing vertigo, like I couldn't have a conversation with more than one person at a time with the partial vision loss. Like I couldn't, I, there was a lot of couldn'ts in my life. There was a lot of things that I could no longer do that I would once um, associated so much of my identity with, you know, my intellect, my productivity, my audacity, like all those pieces that made my contribute my contributions to dream girl, what they were, they were no longer available to me. My my physical capacity was now limited. My my neurological capacity was now limited. So what I could do was put on the accessibility settings on my phone so that scrolling didn't hurt my brain and I would engage with the online world. 
And what I quickly came to realize was there weren't a lot of places for me to be in my full expression of myself, which was someone who really loves her intellect, is educated, um, has built businesses, who I couldn't be seen in that fullness of myself, plus the intersect of chronic illness and being unwell and trying to make this roadmap to healing for myself. So I didn't find a place online where I could be whole in my unwholeness. And, And when I came out of the acute parts of my recovery and started being able to work again slowly, um, the seed for core space was planted. So core space is your go-to place to redefine your relationship with work at the intersects of wellness, identity, impact, and success. So we want to help you work differently, unpack what it means to work and uncover what it means to work and be well. And that came from this period of my life where I had to rebuild my entire identity. And I realized like there is a huge gap for people where we're spending hours upon hours upon hours of our lives working, trying to be productive, trying to create something of meaning and value in the world. And we don't talk enough about what that looks like and what it means to be, to spend most of our life working. So Core Space is that we have a membership tier um, where you get access to original journalism around work um, and how it intersects with the various parts of your life. And we're going to be rolling out in the future trainings and education uh, and e-courses that are going to help people really redefine their relationship with work and become well in their day-to-day lives. That's amazing. I, I'm curious because it seems to fit really well into the content that you already do. The one of the top questions I kind of get from clients is sort of or desires that they have is to like figure out their purpose, find their purpose in work. What's your kind of advice when when women are searching for that? The best piece of advice I've ever gotten in this realm was by way of an event I went to where Glennon Doyle Melton was speaking, and she asked these two questions. And one was, "What breaks your heart?" What breaks your heart? That's who you're meant to serve in the world. And what are you most jealous about in someone else? Like when you see someone else in the world releasing a book, creating a course, building a business, launching a product, does that elicit jealousy in you? If that's the case, then that's how you're meant to do what you're you're here on earth to do. Because jealousy is really just an indicator of I could be doing what that person is doing and I would do it in a way that might be better because it's coming from me. And so what breaks your heart? And I once gave a keynote where we really dove into this. And I think people forget that, that like passion, it, it, it always will come back to a place of service because it's what change, what difference do I want to make in the world? What could I spend every day of my life building? And not where it's like, find what you're passionate about and you won't work a day in your life. I am sounding like a broken record because I know tons of people say this now. It's like, everything is hard work. Yeah. Like I'm core space and I have to unlearn limiting beliefs around building a profitable company like that's hard work but I can do it because what breaks my heart is people who and their unrealized potential and what gets me going is helping people unlock those parts of themselves so that they can live full whole meaningful lives where they don't feel encumbered and stressed out and suffocated by the work that they're doing instead that's something that enhances their everyday life so what breaks your heart like what could what could allow you to be of service every single day and also don't put so much pressure on yourself that it's like everything you 
can do is passion driven. Like some people just like to work and their passion is their family. So they're creating a paycheck that at the end of the day can serve their family to live the life that they desire together. Some people's passion is a hobby that's meant to stay a hobby. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to also take pressure off people that they're meant to live such important and meaningful lives and like that there has to be such intensity around uncovering a purpose. I think it's also like give yourself the flex to just kind of to enjoy your life because I think we can get lost in that dialogue. For sure. I think those are really great questions to think about it that way. I've read her stuff, but I hadn't heard her talk about those two two in particular. Yeah, it really stuck with me when she said them. Yeah. I want to I I also heard um in an interview you were talking about how in our society we're pretty quick to give up on relationships. And it kind of ties into what you're saying about like everything's hard work. Work is hard work, relationships are hard work, and especially in this sort of like cancel culture that we kind of live in right now how do you do that like when when you're faced with individuals in your life who need to remain a part of your life where your your values aren't aligned or something's out of alignment how do you keep that relationship stable or intact or what does that tangibly look like for you sometimes people need to be canceled for short periods of time (laughs) Um, but (laughs) you need a break. Sometimes you just need a break and you need distance and you need boundaries. And I think that sometimes what other people can trigger in us is an unhealed part of ourselves or like wounds that we have, which again comes back to working through these things that trigger you with your coaches or your therapists. But what I would advise is breaks are okay. And it's okay to need to take space from a person. And sometimes it's hard because you live under the same roof as that person or whatever it looks like. But also being communicative, there's nothing more value than being communicative. But the thing is, it's like it's, it's any part of conflict mediation. So a lot of the time, you know, folks who come in who are mediators, they, they're there to help de-escalate the emotion behind an interaction. So when I think of people in my life who are very triggering for me or who I've had terrible relationships with that those relationships need to be rebuilt. I have to let out all of the shit, like (laughs) all of the things that are triggering me, all of the pain that I think they caused me, all of the things that I am blaming that person for need to come out. And sometimes that's in an email. Sometimes I, I can't usually do it in conversation because I think that you don't get the runway that you need to just be honest about where you're at. But once that's put through, you need to give it time to settle with the other person. Like, it's a long process. And so, you know, I'm thinking of, of someone in my life who we've recently come back to each other after, after a good long break where we were having it out via these, these interactions of things where it's like, oh, this is another layer of healing. These are the things that I also, also felt from, from this period in our relationship. But then candidly being able to share that with each other while also having space allowed us to come back to each other and be like, yes, all those things happened. And yes, things took a turn for the worse. But we can come back to our mutual love and respect of each other because there was still a reason we came together in the beginning. So I also think it's like, my husband says this all the time. He's like, when you see those posts about if there's toxic people in your life, you just need to cut them out. Like, that's the easy road. And 
sure for a period you might think this person's out of my life for good but the likelihood that they come back may be high and just having like the maturity and emotional support again through community therapy coaching whatever it is to really unpack like why is this triggering me why does this make me feel a certain way very 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 happily say that in my life now like there are no people who I feel at odds with in my life and that has been a huge part of my healing journey to have adult conversations to take care of my own emotional shit and to show up and own everything I'm bringing into interactions and being very honest with these people because I love them and I don't want pain for myself and I don't want pain for them. So that's my long winded answer that may have felt unclear. No, what, what strikes me is that whether we're talking about entrepreneur, whether we're talking about entrepreneurship or relationships or any of this, like, the worthwhile work is slow and hard. It's not Mm -hmm. nothing like if we want our lives to have meaning in any of these areas, it's a it can be a grind, but it's worth it on the other side versus the like, dopamine hit of these quick rushes. Because that those dopamine hits of quick rushes are just going to make the work take longer. Consistency over time like that is my recipe for success in every facet of life. Yeah. I'm just going to interrupt this interview for a quick second, given that we are talking about wellness and burnout and stress, I did want to let you know about the Stressless in 90 Days program. So I am so honored to bring this to you. Amy, my fellow coach, Amy Stubbs and I have created the Stress Less in 90 Days program to help you regain agency over your life. We want to help you reduce your stress so that you actually have time and energy for what matters most to you. So in this online program, you can either go the self-led route or the group coaching route. I highly recommend group coaching. It's going to launch on September 21st. And this is going to help you shift your thoughts and beliefs around your personal stressors. We're going to help you develop and reinforce strong boundaries, both personally and professionally. You're going to develop a strong self-care, not a self-comfort routine, find and create more joy in your life, create an accountability model that's going to last and make achieving your goals inevitable. We have packed so much goodness into this program and yet we have not overloaded it because we truly believe in curated content and not an over overwhelm of content. So like I said, the group coaching co- program is only going to run a couple times a year. So our first cohort is starting on September 21st. There is a 30-day money-back guarantee. So really, there is no risk to joining up for this program. I know you're going to get so much value out of it. So I highly recommend you check it out at stresslessladies.com forward slash coaching. I would be so honored to have you on this journey with us. And if you are feeling overworked, overwhelmed, overtired, Stressless in 90 Days might just be your solution. Okay, let's head back to the interview. I want to ask, um, you you do some really great uh, Insta Story Lives and sort of, you know, sharing how you're incorporating wellness into your days, you know, working out and meditation and all that, all that great stuff. What does it, I, I feel like all of that is really easy to do on sort of like an average well-paced day. What does a what does a hectic day look for like for you and how do you incorporate wellness into it? Yeah, for sure. So I think that 
it's funny because the last five days have been the first five days in like six months or so where like I haven't meditated. I haven't worked out in about four or five days, which, you know, is long for me because I was so committed to my consistency. But sometimes you do just need a pause to reevaluate, to check in and, and, and to, to move on from there. I am not a mother. So I cannot speak to necessarily the mothers in your audience because that is not a lived reality that I've experienced yet. And any sort of advice I would try to give from that standpoint would just be bullshit. So (laughs) I, you know, my version of hectic is very different than caretakers. And I've made my life in such a way that hectic is on my terms, which is very privileged. And so when I can think of like, when I am responding to and showing up for people in my life in really hectic periods, like after a sudden death or someone uh, is being hospitalized, like Mitch and I tend to be first responders in our family to a lot of those sorts of things because we are very good at sort of like the crisis management side of stuff. It's honestly like in those days, I know to be able to show up for the people who need me the most, like I have to do certain things for myself to perform best in those situations. So, you know, someone we loved passed away in September very suddenly. And when we went back uh, for the week prior and supporting with funeral arrangements and all the different things, like meditation for me was, was a core part of that. And even if it was like five minutes in the morning, like just a little chunk of time for me to be like, what's the intention for today? How can I show up best for what I need to be here for? And then eating really good food because even in hectic times, like we can have the urge to grab the thing that could provide comfort or we can have the urge to know that the other option is what's going to sustain us. And I'm not great at it a hundred percent of the time, but I'm better at it than I used to be. And 80% of the time I can say like, like for example, that, that two weeks back in, in September when it was like, we were, in the pressure cooker, it was like, okay, this is the non-negotiable. Like we landed the, we landed at the airport, went straight to the grocery store first, got everything we needed so that we could perform best for that 10 days. So I think it's just like, make your short list of two to three non-negotiables so that even on the most hectic of days, if you get even like an accumulative 30 minutes throughout your day, like say five or seven minutes for an early morning touch base with yourself, And then making those right food choices, like taking the extra five minute drive to say, um, get the salad bowl versus like the fast, like the other version of fast food. Like we can bring that intention to those actions, even in my opinion, busiest of times. But again, that could be fresh coming from someone who's never had children. I'm talking about like worst case scenario points in our lives where we've had to do crisis management. Like that's where I'm trying to equate that. But I, uh, that's what I would suggest is like, what's your short list of the non-negotiables for you and how do you do them in the shortest time frame possible? No, I totally agree. And it, like pockets of time or areas that you can really capitalize on. Like I'm even thinking at, as a mother with two crazy children, one being a toddler, when the tantrums are flying, I occasionally <laughs> will just remove myself to the bathroom for 10 deep breaths. And that's that, great. like, it's not a lot, but it will make a difference. Yes. And that is, I think like, you know, I am surrounded by a lot of new moms and that like that selfishness like needs to be 
celebrated. And I chose selfish for a reason because it's a word that triggers so many of us. But it's like, what are you going to do? Sit there in the tantrum. Like this little being needs to let this process through their body, through their head, like through whatever it is they're going through while you also need to take care of you. So like I encourage that and I do that with my nieces and my nephews and the little ones around me. It's like, okay, you, you, you're doing your thing. Let's just, I'm just going to take a second for myself too, because my inside of me, I want to be doing the exact same thing as you. (laughs) Well, and I recently saw a video where they were talking about like how we need to help kids self-regulate. And -hmm. it occurs to me that like so many of us never learned to regulate ourselves. And so it's kind of like having to, I'm learning a lot about myself through this process. So totally. And I mean, our first instinct as parents and caretakers is I don't want this person to feel pain. Um, I don't want this this person I've created, this little baby of mine, to have to experience pain or all of these things. But like truly, one of the probably the greatest gifts of having gone through so much at such a young age is like I genuinely know all of that made me stronger. And beyond like the I don't know, the cheesiness of it, it's like I hope for my future kids that they are able to walk through the adversity that they're going to face as mixed kids in this world, navigating two cultures and identities and trying to figure out life. Um, I hope that they have the tools to face adversity in a way that they can self-soothe and that they can get back on their feet. Like that's how I was raised. I grew up with in an alcoholic household. Like that shit wasn't easy. My mom did her best in the circumstances we were in, but I had to learn very difficult ways uh, in very difficult circumstances, how to like, how to get back up and how to, you know, be a kid when you're in adult situations and all of those pieces. So the self-soothing, self-regulating, I think is something that I hope I will be decent at employing while also knowing I I don't want my children to hurt at all. (laughs) Yeah, no, I hear you. Well, I could talk to you all day, but uh, we're going to respect your time. and We're going to move into the five questions that we ask at the end of every interview. So we may have talked about some of these already, but what are the things or the projects that get you really fired up in a good way? So right now, CoreSpace, when we launched our MVP uh, earlier this year in 2019, we focused on work wellness and impact. And we've been really looking at the data and listening to our members and realize that work and how it intersects with wellness, success, identity, and impact is where people want more content. They want to know, how can I work and be well? How can I work differently? And what does it actually mean to work? So when we realized this, and I realized that like this is what people come to me for, this is what people want to hear from me, I felt like I went from swimming in murky water to swimming in a, in a crystal clear lake. And so this makes me excited because it also shows me, and I hope your listeners can can have this as a takeaway, that like if you work through the murky stuff of product development, messaging, um, figuring out what box you fit into or what you're actually putting into the world, like what do your customers actually want, doing the hard stuff of asking the tough questions, like you can get to a place where your product is excellent, your audience is responding beautifully and you can scale. So I'm really, really pumped about what we're creating over at CoreSpace. This next iteration of things in this next 12 months is going to be really wonderful. And in terms of other projects, I find that like everybody's creating an online business or like some sort of educational tool online. 
And there are a few folks who like, I really love what they create. And one of them is Kat Gaskin with the content planner. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I love Kat. I'm going to be doing her workshop this summer. And I just find that like, she, she shows me what can happen if you truly show up for your business and get over your fears. And so, so she gives me a lot of excitement. Yes. Well, fun fact, we just interviewed her for the podcast. So she's going to be on in July. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, shout out to Kat and check out that episode uh, when Victoria introduced Kat. I haven't heard it yet, but I'm sure it is fire. There you go. Um, so I imagine many entrepreneurs were big readers. What is the most inspiring book you've read in the past few years or or couple of books? The biggest, uh, the book that was most important in my recovery was Option B by Cheryl uh, Sandberg. Oh, yeah, yeah. And she, her husband passed away very suddenly when they were on vacation in Mexico and he was running on the treadmill and had something happen with his heart and he passed away. And he was a very um, like prolific CEO and she obviously is the CEO of Facebook. And I just remember watching that happen after the whole lean in era. And she worked with this man, Adam Grant, who is this incredible um, psychologist, um, prolific writer as well. And they wrote this book that is like if option a like gets fucked up pardon sorry for there um like how do you live with option b and she shared this one segment in the book that like really helped me in my recovery and gave me a lot of insight into my experience with going back to work after being sick and it was around like when you have someone who comes back into the workplace after facing like immense grief immense trauma illness whatever it happens to be their confidence is shot. They don't have a lot of belief in themselves and their capacities. Their whole world is turned upside down. So the last thing as an employer or a colleague that you want to do is point out every day how different that person is or how like they used to be so much better at X thing or why don't they perform the same way? Because if anything, like that will cause them to go deeper into their grief, trauma, depression, whatever it is. And what she said Mark Zuckerberg did with her was encourage her to sit in on meetings, even if halfway through she had to leave because she was crying because of her, her grief and her trauma and that was a huge insight to me because I I didn't have that knowledge when I went back to work with dream girl uh, after my sickness and a lot of the dialogue that played out we could have prevented had we had those insights um, and the other is when someone's coming back after something really hard you might think that time off is what they need but they might actually want to work so they have a semblance of normalcy so I give that option to all my employees where if something goes down, they have the option of if you want to work, like work, or if you want to act like you're working, act like you're working, <laughs> like, or if you want to just be completely off, be completely off. But I leave it to them to decide um, and giving them that agency and uh, trust so that they know that like I'm right there with them as they're going walking that journey. But option B is a, is a fantastic book for anyone who wants more insights on what it's like to pick yourself back up after a really tough thing in the context of work. Yeah, I actually prefer to over lean in. I found it really oh interesting. Oh my God. It's really interesting to me because lean in wasn't something that I resonated with me at neither. all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. Um, but I think that after you go through such a significant trauma, like you break open in a way that allows you to connect very deeply with a lot of people. And so I commend her for having the courage to write that book 
and seeing like the impact that it's had for a lot of people. Yeah. So what are your biggest stressors nowadays and how do you manage that stress? I, uh, my biggest stressor is like balancing my workload because a lot of what I talk about is like decoupling your productivity from your self-worth. And um, now that I'm back at work and in the full swing of things and managing a team of six, there I tend to undervalue the amount of work that I do. So I struggle with actually being like, oh, hey, like I'm working a lot. I should probably, I not even should probably, but I have the tools to know that if I slow down a little bit, I'm going to be better off in the long term. So I think it's like, same problems, different, different costume, but just being knowing that I have a lot more tools in my toolkit to help me work struggles. And then I think like, as with any entrepreneur, the imposter syndrome, and, you know, when you're going into a new area of growth in your business, like, what's that going to look like? How do I work against like, the inner critic and all of these different pieces? So yeah, those would be two, two struggles. Yeah. And managing that really with the sort of the self-talk and the therapy and how you do, how you manage day-to-day sort of what's on your calendar kind of thing. Totally. Yeah. What's the, you might have already mentioned this, I think, actually. What's the best life lesson you learned or advice that you've been given? I don't know where it came from, but just like, you're not the work that you do. Yeah, that would be the biggest one. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and that's so hard for so many of us, right? Like that identity piece is just tied in there. Totally. Because that's what we've been societally made to believe is like, we are what we do. Like even when you ask, when you meet someone new, it's like, so what do you do? And we hear this over and over again. Like I, I get broken record, but it's like, how do we shift that to a different kind of conversation around like, who are you? Like, what do you love? What gets you going? Like, how do you like to show up in the world? And even when I'm working with my team about how they like to work, you know, I had one of my employees share with me that they're going to be working remotely for, or they're going to be traveling for three months over this, or sorry, three weeks over the summer. And they were like, don't worry, like, I'll be showing up, like, it won't affect work. And I was like, you don't even need to say that to me, because I know who you are. I know your values. Like, I know how you this is just such a big part of your life is travel. So I'm not going to shame you for that. So yeah, that we are, we are, our work is not like it. We are not what we do. Yeah. And final question is what does it mean to you to live your best life? To me, living my best life is allowing, having the freedom to allow days to unfold in the way they're meant to unfold and to build up and learn more about myself and how like how I want to live my life and letting it be weird and messy and uncomfortable um, but then also beautiful and joyful and not really judging judging the circumstances I'm in or how I'm feeling or what I'm thinking Um, so really just like the freedom to just be exactly where I'm at whenever I'm where I'm at. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Komal, for joining us on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Victoria. So happy to be here.